Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, November 18th, 2021. The beginning of our Parsha, Vayishlach, Yaakov is preparing for a reunion with Esav, his brother, after being separated for over 20 years. And Yaakov is concerned about how this reunion is going to go. And as part of the strategy, Yaakov does the following. He starts with a gift, which, by the way, is very good advice. Just almost any situation, start by giving a gift. Things will usually go much better. So, before they meet, Yaakov sends gifts through messengers to his brother Esav. They have not yet approached each other. They're at a distance. So he sends these gifts. And he takes uh, goats and, um, and uh, camels and cows and uh, donkeys and all of this stuff, which is very, very valuable and very important, very good stuff. And he gives all of this uh, uh, livestock, these gifts, these presents to his servant. And he tells them to servant, take this to Esav and tell him it comes from me, Yaakov. And listen to the instruction he gives. By And Yaakov instructed the first messenger, the one who was going to approach Asa first. He instructed this messenger as follows. When you will meet my brother Lemar, he is going to ask you the following questions. He's going to ask you, Lemiata, to whom do you belong? Vaanaselech, where are you going? Ulami ele lefanecha, and what is all of this that you have with you? When Asav asks you those three questions, Vamarta, you will say to him, Laavdachal Yaakov, all of these possessions belong to your brother Yaakov. And it is a gift that your brother Yaakov is sending to his master, Esav. Notice that Yaakov anticipates that Esav will ask three questions. And Yaakov explicitly instructs his messenger only to answer the third question, not the first two questions. Curious. This passage is one of the bases for a classic essay written by the Rav, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik, a blessed memory. It's titled Confrontation. It's a very famous essay. It is the Rav's major statement about the role and place of Jews in the modern world. 
<clears throat> so first he reflects on a more general insight that's based on an earlier passage in the Torah. I've mentioned this idea to a number of you before. The beginning of the Parsha of Chayisara, we learn that Sarah, Avraham's wife, dies. Avraham has to purchase a field in order to bury Sarah, a burial place. And so Avraham goes to the people, B'nei Ches, the people of Ches, the people living in this area of what we know as Hebron today. And he asks to purchase a field in which to bury his wife. But he introduces himself to the people of Ches by saying to them, Ger v'soshav anochi imachem. I am a stranger resident among you. One more time. Ger v'soshav anochi imachem. I am among you. My relationship with you is ger v'soshav. Now, that's a very curious phrase because the two words, ger and soshav, are opposites. They're contradictory. Ger means someone who is a stranger. I know that today we use the word ger to refer to conversion to Judaism, but the original meaning, and often within the Torah, the word simply means an immigrant, someone who is not from here, someone who is not rooted in this place, a stranger. Toshav is the opposite. Toshav means one who is native, a citizen. Ger v'toshav anochi imachem. What does Avraham mean by referring to himself with these two words that are contradictory? So, based on these words, the Rav, Rav Salavechik, develops the idea that Avraham is expressing our connection to our society, not only speaking at that time, but Avraham is speaking for all time, for all of his descendants. We are Toshav, we are residents, we are citizens, we are part of the wider society. We involve ourselves in the needs and the purposes of society. We are part of society. And at the same time, paradoxically, we are apart from society. There is an aspect of Jewish distinctiveness. We combat assimilation. We insist on Jewish practices and values, especially when it is at variance with the society around us. A similar teaching is the idea that Avraham is sometimes referred to as Avraham Ha'ivri. Now, we usually translate that phrase to mean Avraham the Jew, but the term Ivri, to refer to a person who is a Jew, the word Ivri means Aver, meaning the other side of, referring to the Jordan River. Because when Avraham was living in Israel, he was known as the one who came from the other side of the Jordan River. Remember, Avram came from, his birthplace was east of Israel. 
the area which is now between Iran and Iraq. So to get to Israel, Avram had to cross the Jordan River, just like centuries later, the Jewish people had to cross the Jordan River to come into the land of Israel. But Avram was known as Avraham Ha'ivri, Avram, the one who came from the other side of the Jordan River. In other words, Avraham the Gare, right? The immigrant, the stranger, the one who is not a native. <clears throat> Our rabbis give a further interpretation to this phrase that it's not meant to be understood only in geographic terms, but also in sociological terms. Using the term Aver, the other side of the river, in a metaphoric sense. Meaning, Avraham was one who in his day came upon the understanding that there is one God, creator of heaven and earth, and that all of the idols that people were worshiping in his day were false. And Avraham was willing to say to the world, even if I'm the only person by myself on the other side of the river, but clinging to the truth and the rest of the world, everyone else is arrayed with a different belief, I will stick to my belief. Avram Ha'ivri indicates not just that I am a geographical stranger, but I am an iconoclast. I'm willing to assert my belief in one God, even when it's unpopular, even when everyone else disagrees. So that's the, the first step in Rav Soloveitchik's analysis of our relationship with the rest of the world being part of society and apart from society. Then the Rav addresses our passage to more precisely delineate this dichotomy. The Rav says, Esav is going to ask three questions. And the questions have deep symbolic and metaphoric meaning, each of them. Yaakov says to his messengers, Esav is going to ask you, Lemiata, to whom do you belong? In other words, to whom does your spiritual being belong? Ana Selech, where are you going? In other words, what is your historic destiny? To whom have you consecrated your future? Who is your God? And what is your way of life? And then finally, there's a third question. And to whom belongs these possessions? In other words, are you ready to contribute your possessions, your talents, your capabilities and efforts toward the material and cultural welfare of the society in which you find yourself? Are you willing to pay taxes? Are you willing to develop and industrialize the country in which you live? The first two questions 
relate to the spiritual nature of Yaakov and his descendants. The, only the third relates to the physical, material possessions. And Yaakov says to the messengers, I only want you to answer the third question. To the third question you are to say, yes, yes, here are these possessions and we want to give them to you. We want good relations. We want to participate in the wider society. We are ready. We are determined to be part of the wider society. Every civic, scientific, and political enterprise, we feel obligated to enrich society with our creative talents and to be constructive and useful citizens. But the first two questions, don't answer them. Because the first two questions are about our soul. They're about our spiritual future. And that belongs exclusively to God. No human power can succeed in severing the eternal bond between them and God. Says Rav Soloveitchik, our approach to and relationship with the outside world has always been ambivalent, paradoxical. And we relate and at the same time withdraw. We cooperate in all fields of constructive human endeavor, yet we are committed to another dimension of experience, the spiritual, the sacred. The boundary line between transient possessions and eternal treasures was laid down for us by Yaakov in his instructions to his agents to only answer the third question and not the first two. That's why Yaakov only answers the third question. <clears throat> I learned something astonishing from Sivan Rahav Meir. <clears throat> okay. I want to hold this up to the screen. I know you can't answer me. I won't hear you, but does anybody know what this is? <clears throat> okay. This is how to write Judaism in Chinese. That's it. If you ever need to write Judaism in Chinese, I can send it to you and you'll be able to, to write it. But here's what's fascinating. The literal translation of, of this symbol, of this Chinese word, it's not what you expect it to be. It doesn't translate as the people of the book or the people of Abraham, or the people of Israel, or 
or the servants of God or anything else that you might ex expect. Literally, the way that symbol translates is the religion of the removed sinew. That's what we Jews are called in Chinese. We follow the religion of the removed sinew. And that refers to a passage in our Parsha that leads to a mitzvah that is known as Gid Hanosheh, which means the sciatic nerve, which is a part of an animal that we are not allowed to eat. And it's based on this passage. The night before Yaakov is to reunite with his brother Esav, there is an event. Vayeavek ish imo. And a person, a man, wrestled with Yaakov during that night. Now, we don't know who this ish is. Commentators suggest it was actually the angel that represents Esav. In other words, the representation of the clash of civilizations between Judaism and the rest of the world. That's what's metaphorically happening with this wrestling through the night. They wrestled with each other until the break of dawn. And the opponent who was wrestling with Yaakov saw that he was not able to be victorious over Yaakov. And so this person, this angel, this malach, whatever it is, wounded the joint of Yaakov's hip. And Yaakov was injured through this wounding, this wrestling. By Yomer, so then this, whatever it was, says to Yaakov, Lo Yaakov Yeomer od Shimcha, your name will not be Yaakov, ki im Yisrael, but from now on your name will be Yisrael, Israel. This is where the word comes from, Yisrael, Israel. And what it means is, ki sarisa, Im Elohim v'im anashim batuchal. You wrestled. Sarisa means to wrestle. You wrestled with God and with man and you persevered. By Yisrach lo Hashemesh, the sun rose and Yaakov was limping from the wound, from the injury that he suffered to his hip on his thigh al kain lo yochlu bene israel es girhanoshe asher al kaf hayarach therefore the jewish people who keep kosher do not eat the part of the animal that includes the sciatic nerve which is the nerve that passes over the hip joint which is where yaka was injured 
We don't eat that. Ad until today. Right now, today, if you go to the butcher shop, a kosher butcher shop, you will not be able to buy meat that has the gid hanasha, the sciatic nerve. It's a very, very strange, very strange narrative. Now, obviously, important events in the Torah leave their imprint on Jewish life and Jewish behavior. The creation of the world, we observe Shabbat. Exodus from Egypt, we observe Passover, Pesach. Revelation in Mount Sinai, we observe the holiday of Shavuos. But by what standard does this cryptic, mysterious event of wrestling with the angel and and Yaakov being wounded how does this rise to the level that it leaves this practical imprint on our daily lives? Every time we go to the store to buy meat, we have to remember, oh, I can buy this piece, but I can't buy that piece. Why is this event necessary to remember in this way? Because the practical consequence of this is in order for meat to be kosher, among many other rules, the gid hanashe, the sciatic nerve, must be removed. And because it's very difficult physically to remove this, most Jewish communities in the modern period simply discard that part of the animal, which is one of the reasons why generally the only kosher part of an animal is the forequarter. But the hindquarter, which contains the gidhanashe, the sciatic nerve, as well as some other things that are not kosher, we just simply treat it as non-kosher. That's why there is no such thing as kosher filet mignon. Yes, I know you'll go to a kosher restaurant and they'll have listed filet mignon. They're kidding you. They're, it's a trick. It's just some other cut of meat they're calling filet mignon. There's no such thing as kosher sirloin, for example. Those parts of the animal that come from the hindquarter are generally not kosher because of this mitzvah that comes from this passage. So why is it necessary in our daily choices of what we eat and what we don't eat that we have to remember this incident? The wrestling, why Why should this be something that we need to remember on a regular basis? And furthermore, if you're going to celebrate a victory, you would point to some clear triumph. I mean, the exodus from Egypt was a clear triumph. The revelation in Sinai was a clear triumph. Yaakov was wounded. He was limping. Why would that be something to commemorate, to celebrate? And lastly, why would the mitzvah itself call attention to that part of the body that was wounded, that was vulnerable? So one approach to understanding this is as follows. It's very significant that the verse that tells us about the mitzvah of Gid Hanoshe that I quoted before, therefore we do not eat 
the part of the animal that has the sciatic nerve until this day is not placed, it's not written after the struggle, which is where it would make sense. They wrestled, Yaakov was injured, and therefore we do not eat that part of the animal until this day. That would have been logical, but that's not where it appears. The line about the mitzvah only appears later after the Torah tells us that Yaakov was limping and the sun rose the next day. Because the significance of this incident and what this mitzvah commemorates is not just the victory over what Esau represents. And this passage, we understand, is a metaphor for Jewish history, for the clash between Judaism and the peoples of the world, the religions, the civilizations of the world. It's the ability to overcome after being wounded. That's what is significant. That's why the Torah tells us Yaakov was wounded and he was limping, but he was able to recover. Then the Torah tells us, and therefore we do not eat the Gid Hanasha. Because there is no promise in Jewish history that it will be easy that everything will go smoothly and go well for us as Jews. There is no such promise and there should be no such expectation. But there is a promise from God that no matter what happens, we will survive. Even if we're limping. And not only will we survive, we will flourish in the face of adversity. And it is this idea that the Torah imprints on our daily lives with the mitzvah of Gid Hanasha. There's a famous passage in the Medrash. Our rabbis say that when each of us goes to heaven at the end of our earthly life, God will look at us and will ask, where are your wounds? And we will answer, but we have none. And God will say, was there nothing worth fighting for? Our greatest heroes are not those who succeeded and excelled under easy circumstances. Our greatest heroes are those who were faced with adversity, terrible adversity. And not only were they not crushed by adversity, but they sparkled in the face of suffering. Just think of Rabbi Akiva and the Rambam Maimonides and Abarbanel and the Maharal and all of those who survived the Holocaust in the face of persecution and suffering, private and communal. Not only do we endure but we rise to greatness. That's the message of the mitzvah of Gid Hanoshe, of not eating the sciatic nerve.
It's God's promise of healing our wounds. God's promise of recovery. And it is this event and this promise of recovery that defines us. This is what gives us our name, Yisrael Kisarisa. We wrestled. We were wounded. Vatuchal. And we overcame it. And we triumphed, notwithstanding it. The Chinese term for Judaism teaches us something that is so deep, it is so insightful, and that is that there is no area of life that is not capable of being exalted, sanctified. Judaism survives not only because of our beliefs and ideas and philosophy, but also because of the way that we incorporate these ideals and values into concrete actions in our daily lives, including what we do and do not eat. In a very true sense, we are the people who does not eat the sciatic nerve. Let me share a final third piece with you tonight. A few weeks ago, I described two different approaches to interpreting Torah, especially the narratives of the Torah. One path sees our patriarchs and our matriarchs as fallible. And the other approach seeks to explain or rationalize whatever seems incorrect in their behavior. So I want to share with you a very important example of these two paths and Let's begin by going back to the Parsha before last, the Parsha of Toldos. And let's ask the question that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs asks, was Yaakov right to take Esau's blessing by disguising himself and deceiving his father? Was he right to take a blessing that his father Yitzchak intended for Esau, his brother? Was his mother Rivka, who conceived of this plan that Yaakov should disguise himself and pretend to be Esau and receive the blessing from his father Yitzchak, was Rivka right in conceiving this plan in the first place and encouraging Yaakov to carry it out? So one way to approach this very difficult narrative is Yes, Rivka was right. Yaakov was right. Rivka knew that it had to be Yaakov, not Esav, who would continue the covenant and lead to the destiny originally promised to Avraham going into the future for his descendants. And if Rivka was right, then Yaakov was right to follow her instructions. And remember, keep this in mind, Rivka, Yitzchak's wife, 
who planned this deception. Rivka is the woman that, remember, Avraham's servant chose to be the wife of Yitzchak because of her kindness. Because at the well, remember, she gave water to a stranger and to his animals. Rivka was the embodiment of loving kindness. And if she had no other way of ensuring that the blessing went to the one who would cherish it and live it, meaning Yaakov, then in this case, the end justified the means. This is one approach to understanding the narrative. And this approach is taken by many of our commentators. Rashi, Rabbeinu Bechaye, Ibn Ezra, Radak, and others. And it does seem to be supported by a curious phrase in that narrative. Because if we go back to the Parsha of Toldos, the Torah tells us, and it was by Yaakov, and it was as soon as Yitzchak had finished blessing Yaakov, thinking that it was Esav, and Yaakov left his presence, and then Esav comes in, and he has this meal prepared for Yitzchak, and he says, here I am, I'm ready for my blessing, you said you were going to bless me, and Yitzchak says, oh, oh my goodness, what happened? Who are you? I just gave the blessing. Who are you? And Esau says, I'm Esau. I'm your firstborn. You said you were going to give me the blessing. Yitzchak was trembling, a great trembling, and said, who was it who came in and deceived me and took the blessing from me? Gam Baruch Yiyah, the blessing will remain his. What does that mean? Yaakov is trembling, Yitzchak is trembling that he made this mistake, that Yaakov came in and deceived him and took the blessing through deception. And now Esav comes and he wants his blessing and Yitzchak is, is, is frightened, he's trembling. But he adds the words, but the blessing should remain with him. Well, maybe that seems to indicate that Amidst the trembling and amidst the deception, Yitzchak realized that it was correct that Yaakov should receive this blessing. Maybe. Maybe that supports this first approach. However, that's not the only approach our commentators take. There's another group of commentators that asks us to consider the consequences for Yaakov of his deception of his father. Immediately after that happened, Yaakov had to run away from home. He had to stay away from home for over 20 years. He went to his uncle Lavan's house. He was supposed to marry Rachel. Lavan acts in a deceitful manner to Yaakov and Though Yaakov thought he was marrying Rachel, it turns out that he was actually married to Leah, her sister. And remember, Yaakov says to Lavan when he realizes that Lavan tricked him, Yaakov says, Lama Rimi Sani, why did you deceive me? 
which is amazing because Rimi Sunny, this word deception, is exactly the word that Yitzchak had used about what Yaakov did to him. And listen to what Lavan answers Yaakov. It is not done in our place to put the younger before the elder, meaning Leah was the older sister. It's not right that you should marry the younger sister. You should marry the older sister. The older sister should get married first. But listen to the deeper meaning of those words. And it's not even clear that Lavan understood himself the deeper meaning of his words. It's not done in our place for the younger to take the place of the older. Those words are a direct rebuke to what Yaakov had done. He had taken, as the younger brother, he had taken the place of his older brother, Esav, in deceiving their father to take the blessing that Yitzchak was going to give to Esav. And the result of this deception brought grief for the rest of Yaakov's life. There was tension and jealousy between Leah and Rachel. We discussed that partially last week. There was hatred between their children. Yaakov gets deceived again, which we'll learn soon in the Torah. This time by his sons, when they come to him with Yosef's blood-stained garment and say to him that Yosef was killed when in fact they had sold him into slavery in e to Egypt? Yaakov was not able to be together with his own son Yosef, his beloved son Yosef, for 22 years. Rabbi Yehuda Amital says, Yaakov pays a price for his actions regarding the attainment of the birthright. To quote Nechama Leibovitch, the vicissitudes of Yaakov's life teach us at every step how he was repaid measure for measure for taking advantage of his father's blindness. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs suggests that Yaakov eventually came to understand this during his wrestling with the angel. That's what that was about. And it is this understanding that sets the scene for the reunion of Yaakov and Esau in our Parsha. Because what is really happening in this narrative in our Parsha is that Yaakov is giving back the blessing to Esau. He's saying, I was wrong to deceive our father. I was wrong to take the blessing from you. I'm giving it back to you. And the amazing thing is that the Torah actually says these words. 
but if we're not looking for it, we might not focus on it. But listen carefully. Yaakov and Esav finally meet. There is this reunion. And Yaakov says the following words. Kach na es birchasi asher hu vaslach. Please accept the blessing, birchasi, accept the blessing that I am bringing to you. What does that mean? Please accept the blessing that I'm giving, bringing to you. Of course, in simple terms, he's referring to this gift, which we discussed a little bit earlier, all of the presents that he is gifting, presenting to his brother. But what's happening on a deeper level, he's giving back the bracha. He's giving back the blessing. Yitzchak blessed me through deceit with material plenty, with the fat of the heavens and the dew of the earth. Esau, 22 years later, I'm giving it back to you. Take the cows, take the donkeys, take the camels, everything that my father blessed me with, I'm giving it back to you. In other words, Rivka and Yaakov made a mistake. And what we have in our Parsha is something that we see elsewhere also, where when we look at the story the first time, we understand it one way, but then later, when we see the consequences, we look at that differently. Yaakov and certainly Rivka thought that they were acting properly, but the way things work out, it became clear to Yaakov that he had made a mistake. And he gave it back. The mark of Yaakov's greatness is not that he was infallible, as we have seen with other patriarchs and matriarchs, and as we will discuss further as we go along. The mark of Yaakov's greatness is that he recognized that he had made a mistake and he made amends with his brother. He made peace with his brother and they embrace and they part as friends and they go their separate ways because Yaakov had wrestled with an angel. Yaakov had realized that he was wrong and Yaakov gave back what he took through deceit. And that's really what the Torah is trying to teach us. This is what the moral life is. We learn by making mistakes. We live life forward, but we only understand it looking back. Only by looking back do we see the wrongs we inadvertently took because we thought at the time that it was right. But that discovery and what we do with that discovery is sometimes 
our greatest moment of moral truth. And this is the lesson that every one of us can take from our patriarch Yaakov. To look back, to recognize if we have made a mistake, and then to do whatever is necessary to correct it. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a lovely Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.